Chelek Tezayin, Volume 16, the second Sicha for Parshas Vayakel. This Parsha and next week's Parsha essentially are repeats of Parshas Truma and Tetzava in which we learned about all the materials and the construction of the Mishkan, of the Tabernacle. Why then does the Torah repeat it? Well, as we know, the Torah never just repeats itself. It never says anything superfluous. Rather, everything is to teach us something new, especially when there's something that stands out, something that sticks out, something that has not been mentioned previously. In this Sicha, we're going to learn, as a result of something that is mentioned exclusively in this Parsha, we're going to learn about the true purpose, the dual purpose, the dual objective of what the Mishka, the tabernacle served. In other words, what was it there for? What was it there to achieve? And how both of these purposes are both equally necessary and one is not greater than the other. Rather, one complements the other. One has what the other doesn't have. This Sicha originally was said as a siyum, as a hadron, as a completion ceremony of tractate Chagiga. It focuses on the very last discussion in the in the tractate, and we'll see how it connects uh, with the Parsha and how it helps us better appreciate and understand, like I said, the purpose of the Mishkan. Just as an introduction to help us follow along better later in the Sicha, the, elsewhere the Talmud relates a story where a, a heretic asked one of the sages, if your God is likened to a Kohen, to a priest, then how is it that it says in the Torah that he buried Moshe, in a sense, he became then impure, right? And we know that a priest is not allowed to come in contact with a dead body. So how did he purify himself? And if you're going to try to argue that he um, immersed himself in water, so to speak, as, as to have it, that's impossible because there's a verse that says that water is insignificant compared to Hashem. All waters in the world, so to speak, fit in only to Hashem's hand, as if to say. So he answered him, the sage, that Hashem immersed himself in fire. And for that, he brought himself a, per, uh, a verse in which you see that fire, in fact, is superior in terms of purification, in terms of ridding one from ritual impurity, is, is actually superior even to water. Another interesting um, introduction that'll help us flow along, something special about the Ark. We know that the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark that held the Luchais, although it had very finite measurements, as we learned a few weeks ago, the description of it, exactly how big it needs to be, not bigger, not smaller. Yet, the Talmud tells us that it had a very interesting uh, a characteristic, and that is that although it, quote, took up space, yet it didn't take up space. And it means, in a sense, it was a fusion of the finite and the infinite. How is that? Well, if one was to enter the Holy of Holies, where the Ark was situated, they would measure from the wall to the Ark, and then from the other side of the Ark to the other wall, they would find the measurements to be in, in, a, in, a, in a manner that would indicate that the Ark is not there. In other words, the entirety, the width of it was, let's say, 20 cu uh, biblical cubit feet, and if you measured from one side of the Ark, and then from the other side of the Ark, again, you would come out with a total of 20. So was the ark there or the ark wasn't there? Well, the ark was there, the ark took up space, but yet, quote, it wasn't there. So this was a fusion of the finite and the infinite. We'll see how this applies later. Let's go into our parsha, into the Sikha. On chapter 37, verse 1, the verse, the Pasik says, Vayas Bitzalel And Bitzalel made the ark. Now we know 
that really it wasn't only Bitzalel who made everything, it was so many other great craftsmen who worked alongside with him as the Torah itself describes in detail. Furthermore, we know that really everything is really considered to have been made by Moshe because it was made under his guidance, it was made under his authority, under his tutelage. Yet, over here, the Torah specifies in this one verse, in this one particular item, that Bitzalel is the one that made the ark. So the Medrash comments on this, and the Medrash tells us, here's why. Here's what happened. It says the Medrash, when, Moshe, when Hashem said to Moshe to make the Mishkan, Moshe came to Bitzalel and he said to him to do the Mishkan. So he said to him, that is, Bitzalel says to Moshe, what is this Mishkan? What is this tabernacle that you want me to make? So he said to them, this is a place where Hashem's Shekhinah, Hashem's presence will dwell. And number two, it's a place from which the to- Jews will learn the Torah, meaning this is a place where Torah will emanate from. So Basala says to him, one second, so where is the Torah going to be placed? Where is this Torah going to be placed? You're telling me to build a Mishkan. You didn't tell me anything about a placement for the Torah. So Moshe said to him, well, first we we're going to make the Mishkan, and then we're going to make the Ark. He, saw, he responds to him. He says, no, my teacher, my master Moshe, this is not the proper way to respect the Torah. I, I humbly disagree. And I feel like the proper way to honor the Torah is first to make an Ark and then to make a Mishkan. Concludes the Medrash. This is why the Ark is directly attributed to B'Tzalo, because he gets the credit for having had the, the, the foresight having had the thoughtfulness of, of, of understanding that the Aron, the Ark, is the one that needs to be constructed first, and only later the Mishkan, the tabernacle. Now, from here you see, from this, the fact that Moshe separates the two things. When he described to him, he explained to him what's the purpose of this Mishkan, of this tabernacle. What did he say? He said that there is for, to have the Shekhinah dwell and to have the Ark. The Ark is, that is, the place of the Torah. From this, it seems to imply which is actually the case, we can conclude that this is really like two separate things. There's two things that come together. Number one, there's the aspect of the Torah. Number two, there's the aspect of the dwelling of the Shekhinah. Now the question is, it would seem that these two things are really one. Are really one? It's one one and the same. Or so it would seem. So we're going to learn how these two things are really two aspects of Two separate aspects of connecting to Hashem, which of course they both come together, they were both fused together in a Mishkan, but still they both remain as separate things. So in order to understand this as the devil, we'll take a different approach. We'll turn the things around. We know there's a verse in the verse that describes the commandment of building the Mishkan. It says, Literally translated, and they shall make for me a, a holiness, a, a holy a holy place, and I will dwell in them. And of course, the sages point out, it doesn't say, and I will dwell in it. It says, and I will dwell in them. What is this telling us? In each and every one of them. That means through the aspect of the, and the idea of the Mishkan, through this ideal, this is how we bring about that Hashem should dwell in each and every Jew. So the Rebbe says, we'll take now a look. We'll now visit this idea of how Hashem dwells, how Hashem connects to each and every person, how each and every person connects to Hashem, makes himself as a dwelling place for Hashem, and through that we'll have a better appreciation and understand these two aspects in the gen in the in the in the large Mishkan, let's call it, in the collective Mishkan, in the in the in the greater Mishkan. 
So we'll look at the individual one and then we'll get an idea of the collective one. So for this, the Rebbe says, let's take a visit to the end of the tractate of Chagiga. Over there, the Talmud relates. After the Talmud discusses the tzipui, the tzipui that is the coating of the altars, there was the coating, the outer altar was copper, the inner one was gold, the one that has the incense on it, that, that had a constant fire burning all the time. After discussing it and the ramifications of it, meaning the halachic applications of it and 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 how that you know the, the, how it makes a difference in halacha in terms of laws of purity and impurity the gemara gives us a very interesting midrash a very interesting anecdote and the gemara says as follows rabbi vohu said in the name of rabbi elazar means the scholars torah scholars the fire of gehenom of purgatory has no power over them why Okay, oh, oh, it's in English. It's called a fortiori, meaning you learn another kavachomer from a salamander. Why is that? A salamander, which is at the end of the day, it's only a derivative. It's only born from fire. It comes out of fire. And what happens? One who takes the blood of a salamander and anoints himself, coats himself in that blood, then fire cannot affect him. It becomes fire retardant. Therefore, from this you can learn out how much more so. Talmidei Chachamim, Torah scholars, who their whole body, meaning the whole being, becomes one with Torah, and Torah is fire, as it says, for, quote, in the verse it says, for behold, my words are the words of fire, and the, the words of Torah, the words of Hashem, how much more so that the fire of Gehenim cannot have an effect on them. So in continuation of that, says Reish Lakish, another great say says, well, the fire of the purgatory, the fire of Gehenim, also could not affect, has no power over Poshe Israel, over the Jewish sinners, meaning the lowest tier of the Jewish society. And this, he says, is a Kalvachomer, is a fortiori from the Mizbah Hazov, the golden altar. And he says as follows let's look at it. The golden altar which only has a, a coating of one th- of a th- the thickness of a dinar, of a coin, of a, sm- of a, of a small denomination coin. And that's, that's what it's coated in gold. That's, that, that's, the, that's the extent of the gold that it has in it. And yet, how many years does the fire burn on this altar and yet it doesn't melt away the gold? So therefore, from this you can learn out by means of Kalvachomer, the Jewish sinners that are full of mitzvot, as we know, on the verse in the Song of Songs, which says, which literally means that your temple is, your house, your house is like the shell of the, of the pomegranate. But the sages tell us that instead of reading the word, which means the, your, 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 your temple, rather we should read it, which means the empty ones amongst you, which is saying that even those who appear as sinners, and indeed are so, they do a lot of sins, but still they are full of mitzvot, just like the shell of a pomegranate is full of seeds, and those seeds are each one in itself, a fruit in itself. So, Reish Lakish concludes that the fire of Gehenom can also not affect even the greatest sinners. So this will bring us several questions, okay? This is a synopsis of the questions that the Rebbe asks. Number one, it seems that the same Kalvachomer, the same a fortiori that we learn 
for the Jewish sinners would most certainly apply to the scholars. In other words, why is it necessary to have a separate, a separate teaching for the scholars when we can learn it out directly from the same teaching that if it can help for the sinners, how much more so for the Torah scholars? Moreover, think about it, looking now into the detail. How do we learn it out for the, for the, for the Torah scholars? In other words, where did we derive the Kalvachomer from? From a salamander. A salamander is a non-kosher creeping animal. And from there, you're going to derive a lesson for what's considered to be the greatest, the highest tier of Jewish society, the, the, the Torah scholars? It doesn't make sense. The sinner, from where we learn it out, we learn it out from a holy object. And the scholar, we're learning out from an unholy object, an unholy thing we're deriving it from. It seems to be a little curious. What's going on over here? Another interesting question is that if you think about it, they both have something in common, meaning they, the Torah scholar and the Jewish sinners. The sinner committed sins. That's why he's in Gehenna. But obviously, the scholar also committed some sins. Otherwise, what's he doing in Gehenna? What's he doing in purgatory? Obviously, he did something wrong. So why is it that he's still called a scholar and he's called a sinner? In other words, a scholar in this case should be called a scholar who sinned. No, we just call them scholars. A scholar is not in Gehenna. And as if, we're, as if we're totally obliterating and becoming oblivious to the fact that he sinned. Why? What's going on over here? Says the Rebbe, the explanation of all this is as follows. The way a Jew and HaKadosh Baruch Hu connect is in two manners. In two general manners. We have Torah. And we have mitzvot. Torah is such a unity as the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shneir Zalman, describes in Tanya. He says it's Yichud Nifla She'en Kamoyo. This is an, uh, an amazing and astonishing unity that there is nothing like it. You become literally like one with Hashem on the deepest level. And if you think of it, because Torah is intellect and you're using your most inner thing of intellect and with that you're connecting, so to speak, to the intellect of Hashem, that's a tremendous unity that's one that, that, that is unbelievable. On the other hand, what is the mitzvah? Mitzvah is a connection to Hashem, where one takes himself and subserviates himself to Hashem, but it's not the same unity as you have through Torah. Yes, you become subservient to Hashem, but it's still something external. You still remain a material thing. So when we look back at these two items that were brought in the end of the Gemara, at the end of this uh, tractate Chagiga, so we see that Rabbi Lazar is clearly referring to the greatness of the Torah, to the connection of the Torah, and therefore, he's, he's, he, in other words, he's focusing on this aspect of connection between a Jew and Hashem, and therefore he focuses in on the scholar whose, quote, body, his whole entire being becomes like fire, becomes connected to the Torah. Whereas Rish Lakish is, is focusing more on the greatness of and the, and the accomplishment and the, the, in other words, the, 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 what, is, what becomes accomplished through mitzvahs. And over there, the accomplishment is that even though it's not the ultimate unity, in other words, and think of it, think of the fact, the fact is there, the proof is there in the pudding that the person is a sinner, He's not a scholar, he's a sinner. He's a bad person whom, in other words, in other words, in most of his being, he is separate from Hashem. Yet, 
he is full of mitzvot and he's able to connect to Hashem. And this is parallel, you can see actually, in the in the in the in the in the in the fact that we compare it to a rimon, to compare it to a a um, a pomegranate. What is a pomegranate? The shell and the fruit are two separate things. Likewise, here the poshei Yisrael, the Jewish sinner, and the mitzvot. Although the mitzvot complement him, and although he's full of mitzvot, yet he and the mitzvot are two separate things. Unlike the Talmud Chacham, who he and the Torah becomes one thing, quote, gufam um, eish. Their entire body, their entire being becomes like fire. And now we understand why you cannot learn one from the other. Remember, we asked the question, if it works for the Poshea Yisrael, for the Jewish sinners, it has an effect so much that the fire cannot affect them and cannot totally burn them up, then certainly for the Talmud Chacham, the answer is no. You really can't learn one from the other because they're totally different. Think of it this way. In a certain sense, if and when the Talmud Chacham, the scholar, sins, when he slips, it's actually, in a sense, worse, it's more severe than when the simple Jew, when the sinner sins. Because the sinner is a sinner. He's not perfect. He's far from it. But when a scholar slips like that, now that is amplified by the fact that he's a scholar. In fact, the Talmud elsewhere suggests that for a Talmud Chacham, Shkagos, even the unintentional sins, the one one does by mistakes, for him it's counted like Zdonas as if it's intentional sins, what would be for the case for someone else. On the other hand, let's learn out maybe the sinners from the scholars that you can't do either because the sinners are totally different. The sinners are not like the scholars. The scholars are entirely connected to Hashem, as we said before, quote, their whole body becomes fire, the whole body becomes Torah. And now we can understand, get better appreciate, why the emphasis to learn out the Talmud Chacham, the scholar from a salamander, which we argued it was a non-kosher animal, right? A non-kosher creeping animal, which is even worse. And the answer is, because over here is a great question that one can ask. How is it possible that a Talmud Chacham, who is so connected to Hashem, how could he possibly sin? And on the other hand, if he did sin, then why should the fire of Gehenim, why should the fire of Purgatory not affect him? And the answer comes from the, 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 the symbolism of the salamander. That on the one hand, it comes totally from fire. And fire can take away impurity, if you recall that Gemara we mentioned in the introduction. Fire takes away impurity on the highest level. And yet, if it takes away impurity, that means fire is the, uh, a symbol of the ultimate pureness, purity. How could he sin? How could it become a non-kosher animal? So you see that the fact is that even if it comes from fire, yet it, could, it itself could become something so impure that it's not only just a non-kosher animal, it's a non-kosher creeping animal. Yet on the other hand, take the... Take the blood from this thing, in other words, take the blood from this salamander and smear yourself with it. And in other words, coat yourself with it, it serves as a protection and it becomes you become fire retardant. And from here I understand that even though the Talmud Chacham is entirely fire, meaning entirely Torah, but still at the end of the day, he's still a human being, and as much as he's connected to Hashem, he still has the unfortunate capacity that he's able to sin, he's able to slip. But the Chiddush is, the novelty here is that still, even though it seems so severe, as we said before, and even though it has such a negative impact, and, and it's amplified by the fact that he's a Talmud Chacham, yet 
the fire of Gehenim could not could not um, affect him. And now we also appreciate why we bring the proof for the non-Jewish for, uh, for the for the Jewish sinners for the Poshi Yisrael. Why we bring it from the coding of the Mizbeach? Think about it. The coding of the Mizbeach, whether it was the golden or the copper one, the inside was made out of wood. The main body of it was made out of wood. The coding and the and, and the structure itself were two separate things. They never became one. They never blended together. It's just that what? The coding guards it. This is the best symbol for what happens to a Poshe Yisroh. What happens to the Jewish sinners? That although they didn't become one with the mitzvot, and the, and, and the proof for it is that they're still Poshe Yisroh, they're still considered Jewish sinners, yet all the mitzvot that they have accumulated protect them. And now we can understand why you call these Talmud HaChachamim and these you call um, Poshim. They call them sinners. Because although they both sinned, but we know that there is a prohibition against embarrassing a Talmud Chacham. You see, one who becomes one with the Torah, he's no longer representing only himself. When you embarrass him, you're actually embarrassing the Torah, which essentially is, embar- is, 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 is degrading, so to speak, the honor of Hashem. And therefore, even in a time when they sinned, and yes, the, the fact is, by virtue of the fact that they're in Gehenna, that they're in the purgatory means that they did something wrong, enough to end up there, at least for a short time, for a cycle of cleansing, of punishment. But yet, the fact that he is inherently a Talmud Chacham, all the time, means that he is one with Hashem and he represents Hashem. So calling him anything else other than that, calling him a sinner, in a way, is, so to speak, uh, uh, de- um, degrading Hashem's honor. However, a regular Jew that sinned, especially if somebody is in, in, uh, entirely considered a sinner, a Jewish sinner, a Poshia Yisrael, sometimes by degrading them slightly, by calling them out on it, by calling them that name that is somewhat, somehow somewhat uh, describing them in derogatory t- uh, form, that in itself does them the greatest favor. As we find sometimes in Tanakh, that by dishonoring somebody for the wrongdoing that they did, that in itself served as an atonement and took away so much from their the severity of what they, the impact of their sin. Now we'll get back to the Mishkan, so to speak, to the bigger dwelling of the Shechina, to the larger, more collective Vishachanti uh, Betocham and I'll dwell amongst them, and we'll have a better appreciation, understand why it was divided in two aspects. You see, there's a machlokas, there's a debate between the Ramban, Nachmanides, and the Rambam, Maimonides. The Ramban says that the main thing of the Mishkan, the main thing of the base of Mikdash is to house the Aron, the Ark, which is the place of the Shekhinah. That's the way he says it. The Rambam, however, says, no, the main objective of, of the base of Mikdash is a place in which the korbonos, the offerings could be offered, the, the sacrifices can be offered. And the truth is, says the Rebbe, that we don't must say that they're arguing and that they disagree, but rather, as sometimes the Talmud says, quote, Mar Omar Chado, Mar Pligi. But the, this master said one thing, this master said another thing. In other words, they're both representing two different aspects of the same thing, and they really inherently do not argue. In other words, each one is focused on another aspect of the Mishkan. The Aron, the Ark, which according to Ramban, seems to be the main objective. That is the place of the Torah. Right? And that is something, like we said in the introduction, it was there, but it wasn't there. It was there, but it didn't take up space. 
It was an, it was it was Hashem connecting to the place, but not in a way that you can actually see it in the material and the physical. And this, you know, is like a direct indicator of that essential connection that happens through Torah. However, on the other hand, what did you have? You had the korbanos. What are the korbanos? All the various offerings is you took the actual physical material things and you offered them up. Yes, in appearance, they still remained a physical material thing. When you offered an animal, you didn't suddenly see it transform into Kedusha. You didn't suddenly see it become no longer a material thing. You know that it had Kedusha in it, but you still saw the material in it. And now we understand the above Medrash that we brought in the beginning of the of the of the sikha of the discussion that yes there are two aspects in the mishkan there is the essential aspect of the mishkan that hashem dwells in the mishkan and then there is the connection of the material things as they connect to hashem so you have the aron you have the ark which is the torah which represents that essential connection that unity with hashem and then you have the aspect of all the material things connecting to hashem now this difference between Torah and mitzvahs actually stems from their essential being, from what they are, from their essence. You see, the Torah, as the Zohar says, the Torah, it says, Hashem and the Torah are one. And that's why the unity that happens to Torah is that it become one with Hashem. Whereas mitzvahs are usually referred to in the Zohar and the Kabbalah as, quote, Evarim de Malcolm, the limbs of the king, the body parts. Now, body parts, true, they are one with the soul all the body parts, but still they're all separate entities. The fact is that the soul does not express itself the same way in the eyes as it does in the feet, as it does in the stomach, as it does in the heart, and so on. So each one is an individualized thing, meaning that although they're connected to the soul, they're connected to their inner highest, to their godly energy, but yet they're all separate things. And that's where you see it in the mitzvahs, where they, although they're connected, but they're still separate. There's one more thing that's left to be explained, and the question is, if we have the unity of Torah, which we said is the greatest and the ultimate unity. And that's what we have in general, but we also specifically in the Mishkan, in the Mikdash, then why is it necessary to have the other aspect of connection, which is expressed through mitzvahs? It would seem that that's already a step lower. That's not the ultimate. So the Rebbe explains that we know the Medrash says that the reason why Hashem created the world is because Hashem desired to have, quote, a dira betachtoinim, a dwelling place down here in the lowest Tears in the lowest levels of the world, of the universe. Think of it for a second. The idea that Hashem is unified with something, that, 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 that connection that comes through Torah, true, it's drawing down godliness into the world, but it doesn't really permeate and it doesn't elevate each and every aspect of things. In other words, it's like almost in a way, you think of it as a superficial thing. Okay, it doesn't transform the Gashmis, it doesn't transform the material. Whereas when you take, let's say, the offerings, or in, 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 in our case, in an individual's case, take the mitzvahs, true, it's not the ultimate unity, but it has that special advantage. It has that special accomplishment, which is ultimately truly accomplishing Hashem's desire that he had and purpose in creating the world, and that is to take the Gashmias, take each in, in the individual thing as it is, and elevate it to Hashem, transform it into something greater than just itself. And that brings the two together. You see how each one is necessary. We need the unity that comes through Torah, that's the Ark, and we need the unity that comes through mitzvahs, which is represented in the Karbanos in the Mishkan.